This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? And I'm Martisan. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, what the hell is going on is we're paying $5 a gallon at the pump. Uh, that, if we're lucky. If you don't live in California, my friends, you are paying $5 at the pump. If you live in California, you're paying close to 7 Yes, exactly. And every, of course, it's we all know that it's because of Vladimir Putin. Right, right, because right, he is the it? source of all evil in the modern world. Uh, except that we had a record high in gas prices in October of last year, long before the invasion of Ukraine. So the largest year-over-year increase in gas prices in 30 years hit us in October. And yeah, and energy prices are through the roof. We're now going to have blackouts. The Washington Post reported that there are going to be blackouts this summer. And the reason, they say, of course, because of climate change, which we've had podcasts on that would explain. We had Steve Coonan, our, our fellow AI scholar and, and Obama uh, science, advi- science, advisor. science advisor, who pointed out that there actually are not greater heat waves now than there were 100 years ago. So that's not the reason. The reason is, is because fossil fuel plants are shutting down early because they have been told by John Kerry at the COP26 conference that the Biden administration's policy is no coal plants working in America in the next eight years, which is absolutely insane. And so what that means is if you have a coal plant, you're not going to invest in upgrades and you're not going to invest in that plant. You're going to shut it down early and move on to other things. And as a result, we're shutting down coal plants. But we don't have the renewable energy capability to meet the increased demand. And as a result, if you live in the Midwest, your air conditioning might not be working this summer because of the war on fossil fuels. Congratulations. Well, it really is a manifestation of how divorced from reality this entire movement is. You know, it's great to make a transition to wind. It's great to make a transition to solar. Is it? it, it, You know what? Absolutely. I love the sun. If I could use the sun to heat my house or heat the pool or heat the... What about know, when the clouds come? Well, so I will tell you, I will tell <laughs> you, Mark, that places, in places, for example, like Israel, they've really made solar a great thing, right? They've been using it Israel for many, many years. Sun. Yes, but they have a lot of sun. But again, you know, we're not a country of 8 million people like Israel. We are a country of 340 million people. And this is the challenge for us. We cannot stop what we have until we can replace it with something new. And everything in the interim is fantasy. Government by fantasy, whether it's Donald Trump thinking he won the election or John Kerry thinking that you can heat all of America with wind and sun, is not responsible government. And that is why you're going to have blackouts. That is why you're paying what you're paying at the gas pump. Because, you know, it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work... What the hell is our government doing trying to force it down our throat? No, that's exactly right. They're trying to force us off of fossil fuels before the alternatives are ready. Look, I'm all in favor of clean energy transition. I'm all in favor of those things taking over when they are commercially viable and cheap and effective and more better than fossil fuels. And God bless, that's going to take a long time. You're not it's not going to happen in eight years. But it's also, you know, everybody likes to think of this as, you know, your car. 
right? Your car is the problem. Your car and also all those private planes that Leonardo DiCaprio and Prince Harry are using. But the reality is that fossil fuels are used much more for things other than cars and planes. Just to pick a couple of them, what do you guys think that your Tesla is made of? Oh, yeah, mostly plastic. Where does plastic come from, Danny? I don't know, Mark. I think it comes from little green men. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's, it's a petroleum product, people, <laughs> but not just your Tesla. Also, what about the steel we use? What about that infrastructure investment that we were going to do in Build Back Better? Do you know how much energy the production of steel uses? Your mind would boggle. If we are willing to go back to only using wood, oh, oh, oh but wait, you can't chop down the trees. So where's the wood going to come from again? This is la-la land. We should be having intelligent, real conversations about this stuff, not fantasy land Greta Thunberg shit. (laughs) Well, the other thing is I had a friend who bought a Tesla and I said, I love your coal-powered car. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally like a, a Tesla today is like a steam engine where you would sit there and you just pick the shovel up and shove the coal into the fire and the engine goes. It's literally that because that's where most of the electricity comes from and will come from for a long time. And if somebody were able to invent a battery that we're actually able to store all of this sun and so wind, people, I don't think that would be awesome. That. I don't Because I didn't know that until recently. We don't have the battery technology yet commercially available to store wind and solar. So what that means is wind and solar work when, there's wind, when there's wind and sun. If there is not wind and sun, then they don't work and don't produce any energy, and we're not storing the energy from when there was wind and sun because we don't have the capability to do that yet. So why would you get rid of the coal that gives us the stability to have a sustainable and cheap energy when we can't even store the wind and solar that you want to transition to. It's it's this is it's well, like the Soviet five-year plans. It's like the, the, the government bureaucrats coming in and trying to tell the free economy how to function, and they they fuck it up every time they do it. <laughs> we have an explicit rating, people. Remember, well, because of that, that word. Day, <laughs> I so. know. I, I just I just said, said it five minutes ago. Podcast, so I just, just said it a minute ago. Mark's already forgotten. He's getting a little older. But <laughs> there's another factor here as well. I mean, Mark, you and I spend a ton of time talking about geopolitics. Everybody knows. Everybody in this country cares about what's happening in Ukraine, about what's happening in Russia, about the fact that China is growing more and more aggressive, about the fact that we're afraid about Taiwan. We're looking at concentration camps in Xinjiang in China. And yet fail to understand that when we cede our capacity to produce this kind of energy, when we cede our capacity to produce oil, who do we give it to? We give it to people who don't give a damn about these things, the Russians and the Chinese. This is how the Russians ended up with their feet on the throat of the entire European Union. Yep. No, that's exactly right. So here's a question. Why is it that every time the United States achieves strategic dominance in a critical area of national security, the left wants to disarm. So like during the whole Cold War, the 20th century, our emergence as a nuclear superpower was the great strategic development of the 20th century, right? It helped us win the Cold War. And the left, what did the left want to do? Nuclear disarmament. So the great strategic development of the early 21st century was America's emergence as a energy superpower. And so what does the left want to do? They want to disarm except this time it's energy disarmament. The geopolitical implications of our emergence through fracking and other so- other technological developments as an energy superpower help us against Russia, help us against China. 
strengthen our relations with countries like India and other places who are dependent on Russian energy and right. should not India, be. India, who is helping sustain Russia during this conflict exactly. and undermining our sanctions they, it, along with China. Where, uh, where we should be encouraging to buy American fossil fuels, not Russian fossil fuels. We need to be producing more. We should not be disarming ourselves of just at the very moment that we've achieved the status of an energy superpower where we're the largest producer of LNG, largest producer of oil in the world. Why would, on earth would we give that up? And all the geostrategic implications of that, for example, you were talking about China, the South China Sea. We just saw Russia invade Ukraine and everyone said it couldn't happen, right? And they never do it, right? If the Chinese invade Taiwan, one of the things that we have in our pocketbook is the ability to cut off oil imports into China through the Straits of Malacca, right? So we, we, could bl- we could do a military blockade and cut off their energy supply and cripple their economy. Why would we want to encourage them to become less dependent on fossil fuels and give up that strategic choke point that could deter a war with Taiwan as opposed to maintaining that? But, you know, the thing is, look, I, I accept the idea that people have different priorities. Some people don't care if Russia invades Ukraine. I mean, you, Rand Paul. You're going to get, you're going to. But hang on a second. Some people don't care. Some people think it's much more important for us to transition to, you know, their fantasy new energy, green energy, than it is for us to be concerned about, you know, Uyghurs or Ukrainians or other places that begin with you. And all I have to say to that is, okay, that's fine. It's fine if those are your priorities, but you do have to actually provide a pathway forward. The argument here is that we are giving up one thing in favor of something that doesn't exist. And this is where I think we really have the problem. Yes, absolutely. Invest in more. Absolutely. Try and figure out how we can move more quickly. Try and figure out how we can have cleaner coal, how we can have cleaner emissions, how we can have fewer emissions. All of those things are fine. But don't do them if you don't actually have an alternative so, you know, I'm perfectly willing to accept that there are people who think the environment is more important than human freedom. Okay, fair enough, because they think that human freedom will end if because we're all going to blow up one day because we've killed Mother Earth or some such rubbish. But, you know, fair enough. But then just tell me what the alternative is. Yeah, just, they don't have just an alternative. let me know. And I will tell you this, Danny. I think secretly, if it wasn't for the political blowback that they're experiencing, they love these high gas prices in the Biden administration. Oh, they, they what do you mean? We, you we know, saw Jennifer Granholm say that. Yeah. This will this will encourage the transition to electric cars. Yeah. Like, lady. Biden Biden gave that speech in Tokyo, said it's a good part of an incredible transition. And and you had the Secretary of the Interior testify before Congress, asked by, by Senator Barrasso directly, are gas prices too high? And she couldn't say yes. Well, right. the, it's it's of a piece but, with not but, knowing but what a woman is. But this is, is what it. it <laughs> but here's the thing: they look at this like cigarettes, right? So, what did the government do to get people to stop smoking? They raised the price of tobacco. They put taxes on the cigarettes. They made it financially unacceptable to to smoke for people. And so, they see high gas prices as a perfect way to wean us off of our fossil fuel habits. And as long as they can blame Vladimir Putin, that's where the Putin price hike comes in. Well, it's yes. not our fault. It's Vladimir Putin's fault. But we're part of this great transition. They're perfectly fine. If they could get away with it electorally, they'd be perfectly fine with 5 and right. 6 and $7 gas because they see they it as a and means to an end to their well, their climate change agenda. Know, agenda. Right, but that's basic economics. I don't disagree with them. But then, you know, be honest with the American people. No, you know, I don't care that you can't afford, that you have to choose between food and gas. Yeah. I don't care, people, you know. Tough luck. Yeah. No middle class tax hikes. 
So Mark and I have been ranting away about this. As you can tell, we, we feel kind of strongly about it. But but we actually do have a guest who is not going to rant with us. All of you, uh, I'm sure, remember Dan Jurgen. He is just, you know, he is the, the great eminence on energy, on geopolitics, on the global economy. He's a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for his absolutely incredible book. Uh, and then the series that was made from it, the prize, was, was a brilliant education. I loved it when it came out. And it's still a very, very worthwhile read. His newest book is called The New Map. And there's a new edition that just came out at the end of last year very presciently <laughs> predicted that if, if we were going to have problems between Russia and the United States, it was going to be over Ukraine. So uh, Jürgen is the vice chairman of S&P Global. He's a director of the Council on Foreign Relations and a trustee of our next door neighbor, the Brookings Institution. Here's our interview. Well, Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Delighted to be back. Thank you. So we had you on two years ago. And we were celebrating the fact that America had become an energy superpower. We had gone from being the world's largest importer of oil to one of the world's largest exporters of oil and the largest exporter of natural gas. And things were looking good in the energy front. They're not looking so good right now. What happened? Well, obviously, what we are now in is a global energy crisis. The things you say are certainly remain correct. The U.S. is the world's largest producer of oil. And if we were not, uh, we've been much more serious problem than we are. And in fact, um, we were, until there was a, an accident in Texas, uh, on schedule to be the largest exporter of LNG in the world. We're still one of the largest. And our LNG exports have become a national security asset to the Europeans in a way that they never thought about it before the invasion of Ukraine. So... Of course. Right. We're in a global energy crisis. Mark and I have spent the last six months or so talking about how this reminds us of the 70s, this period right now. But of course, OPEC doesn't have the same stranglehold over us. But let's just start at 30,000 feet. Can you help our listeners understand, you know, this isn't Saudi Arabia's fault, <laughs> at least not this time. No. Why are gas prices so high? Well, it's not well, just Ukraine. No, first, I mean, what may not be recognized, this energy crisis did not start with Ukraine. This started last autumn when the world started to get free of, uh, of COVID and economic activity really took off. And suddenly China was short of coal. Uh, the world was short of LNG, liquefied natural gas. And the Europeans were paying five to six times uh, what they had paid before uh, for imported gas. And then, uh, and then, of course, oil prices went up, too. Remember, it was last November, well before the war, that the administration suddenly started to get very worried about gasoline prices, because that was just a year before the election. So this was already in motion. What's happened now is a global energy crisis has now become a global geopolitical crisis and uh, made worse by now, of course, this war and the difficulties, uncertainties, and risks of uh, Russian oil and gas production, which really now is uh, putting great pressure uh, on the European economy. Okay, but how did we get to the point when we came out of COVID? I mean, wasn't that all predictable, right? D demand was going to skyrocket, you know? Uh, well, uh, Danny, you know, it was the assumption was quite prevalent that actually uh, it wasn't going to uh, uh, take off, that... Uh, 2019 was a high point for energy demand. The energy transition was going to move at uh, warp speed. 
and uh, oil and gas and coal would all be irrelevant. But here we are in 2022, and 80% of the world's energy comes from oil, gas, and coal. And uh, demand really did take off. And meanwhile, we've seen what uh, I've taken to calling preemptive underinvestment uh, in energy resources <laughs> on the premise that they weren't going to be needed. And it turns out they're really needed. And, uh, and that's what's really compounded this crisis. And right now is giving Vladimir Putin some high cards to play. Though, as you, as you point out, it started before the war in Ukraine. For example, there was a Washington Post just reported on the front page a few weeks ago that we're facing mass blackouts this summer when the summer heat wave hits, not in California and Texas, which, which have had problems with blackouts for a long time, but across the Midwest, which had, had stable electricity for 10 years. And one of the reasons is be the early shuttering of coal plants. These coal plants have not been investing in upgrades and are shutting down early because, you know, Secretary Kerry said at the COP26, well, we're going to have no coal plants in America within eight years. Uh, I yeah. mean, are we ready for this transition? And is, are, are these decisions no. that our government is I, making that are causing it? I think that um, thinking has gotten ahead of reality. Yes, there is an energy transition. It's a longer process. One of the things I looked at in the new map, which was really eye-opening for me, is this phrase, energy transition, just gets thrown around. So I look back at all the previous energy transitions and went so far as to say the energy transition actually started in January of 1709 when an English metal worker figured out you could make iron better using coal rather than wood. But all the previous energy transitions unfolded over a century, and they weren't really transitions, they were energy additions. And a very good example is oils discovered in Pennsylvania 1859. Not until the 1960s does oil overtake coal as the world's number one energy resource. But by the way, today the world uses about four times as much coal as it did during the 1960s. And so now this energy transition has never happened before to say in 28 years we're going to completely change the energy basis of a $90 trillion economy. And oh, by the way, we're going to get half of that done by 2030. It's never been done before. So it is a really big gamble. And in a sense, if you look at the power system in the United States today, it is a gamble. Wind costs, solar costs have come way down. They're very competitive. But we have a very big system. They're, they're intermittent. They don't work all the time. They either go up very high or go down very low. And Calif that's what partly California is living through right now, even if it's not really addressed. And that's, uh, you know, what we, what we see is that, in fact, you don't have energy transition without energy security, and you don't have energy security without energy diversity. So uh, in rushing to shut down an existing electric power system to replace uh, A with B when B is not fully deployed uh, is uh, a risky thing for the economy. And that's why, as you say, you know, there's a lot of concern if we have a hot summer this, this, uh, this summer, what the pressures will be on our electric power system. And that's really pretty kind of divorced from what's happening uh, outside in this sort of global energy crisis. Isn't the problem with wind and solar that we don't yet have the battery technology to store them? So if you don't have wind and sun, then you don't have wind and solar energy. Who is the policymaker who thought we should choose our move our dependence onto an intermittent source of energy that can't be stored and give up source of energy that can be stored and is available even even when there's no wind and sun? There's a lot of pressure to do that. I mean, they're you know shutting down nuclear power plants too. A number of shut down there. The other form of base load. 
And to me, and again, I've thought about this a lot when I was writing the, the new map, that you're saying we really want to rapidly electrify the economy. We want all automobiles, or they're saying the new cars that are sold by 2030 or 2035 all to be electric. Well, we're moving in a whole direction to be more reliable on our electric power system. Well, then you better also think about the reliability of that system in order that, uh, you know, when people will be able to charge their cars when they need to. So, I, I mean, <laughs> you, you can hear me sort of struggling to, to put this sentence together because it really is unbelievable when you think about it that, you know, that, that the government is putting us in a position where we're going to end up relying on something that is almost completely unreliable. And, of course, that... that well, I won't no- say completely unreliable because, I mean, you know, obviously wind and solar, you know, have real virtues. And as I say, the costs have come real down. They're competitive, but they're not standalone. They're not standalone. But, Dan, it's not just that they're not standalone. It is that they themselves require the investment of vast masses of electricity and energy in order to even begin to make them. You know, we need the rare earths in order to make these wind. Okay. So let me jump in there, uh, Danny, because that's a very good question that I think there's just a kind of awakening to. People may not have noticed this, but the International Energy Agency, the IMF, the World, the World Bank, the U.S. government, the European Union, have all actually written papers and put out reports warning that there's a real question about, uh, as you're saying, the rare earths and indeed the minerals that you need to move towards wind and solar. People think, oh, wind-free, sun-free, yes, but you need an enormous amount of uh, minerals for that system, and that means you need a lot more mining. And the way I put it in the new map, we're moving from a world of big oil, which, of course, is what headline writers and uh, broadcasters love to say, to a world of big shovels, because you're going to need so much more mining at a scale that people are just not comprehending. And we're very shortly coming out with a study about copper. And uh, I don't want to front run the the study because it's going to be released shortly. But the needs for copper are enormous, and they're just not being factored in. So there's that other thing. And, you know, this uh, the Russia's war and the sanctions and so forth has actually highlighted it because it turns out, you know, Russia is the source of a number of uh, important commodities, including nickel, palladium, uh, the nuclear fuel cycle, thank you, uh, as well as, of course, uh, wheat and other commodities. So you really do depend upon these other supply chains that at a normal time, no one thinks about because they just take them for granted. I can say one other thing. The International Energy Agency, in its report, said, uh, by the way, on average, it takes 16 years uh, to open a, uh, to go from discovery to opening a new mine. 16 years from today would be, you know, you're talking about 2038. <laughs> uh, and maybe it's 2040 because you've got to get permits. And, uh, you know, and this, the, this mining, you can't get a permit uh, very easily to open a new mine in the United States. So these mines will come from somewhere else, this, these minerals. And by the way, the new supply chain for net zero in a very substantial way happened to pass through a country called China. And so there's where you see the energy transition and the new geopolitics uh, colliding, you know, not tomorrow, but 
five or 10 years, particularly as you move in that direction. So that needs to be thought through too. Again, thinking needs to catch up with what are going to be the new realities. And also a lot of these uh, minerals and rarities exist in the U.S., but there's not political support for the mining to do them because of it. it's, a, it's so destructive. So we want the mining to be done elsewhere. And you mentioned China, but it also uh, I've seen reports that China is buying up mines across Africa and other places. They're, they're, they see this. And Afghanistan. And they, they see this transition yeah. coming and they are out there buying up all the commodities, all, all the all the mines to produce these uh, these minerals and rare earths. And so we're moving, aren't we moving to a situation where we're going to be dependent on China for our... For our... Well, China's a, a, a player, uh, this is anecdotal, but somebody who was just actually on a, a kind of a reporting mission in Afghanistan told me that he saw a lot of Chinese in the hotels. And obviously they're looking at Afghanistan, which apparently is very rich in minerals. So yeah, this is going to be dependent. And China is obviously already very active in Africa. They're increasing their step up, stepping up their activity in uh, Latin America. They don't opine on the nature of the government that's in power. And if you look at even the most recent elections in Chile and now in Colombia, uh, that whole continent is generally on a left-wing nationalist trend. So as the prices for these commodities go up, what happens? Governments... uh, decide they want to take more of the revenue. And so, you know, it's not smooth, uh, not smooth sailing. And we're not talking about things at the fringe. We're talking about very significant dependence and, you know, tied into what do we call it? The new era of great power competition, strategic rivalry. I just came back from South Africa. And when we were on the highway, literally there were trucks going from mines to the to the ports filled with minerals going to China. So striking is, you know, the Chinese, they don't have any agenda really except securing the supplies. Right. And global yeah. domination. Right. <laughs> they're, not interested in, they're not interested in the environment. They're not interested exactly. in, well, in democracy. Well, I was going to say they don't, they don't, there aren't a lot of NGOs active in China these days. No, no surprisingly few. <laughs> so let me yeah. ask you about America. Okay, so, you know, we're paying five, six, seven bucks, depending on where you're living, a gallon of gas. For Europeans, that's still a bargain. But for us, for Americans who drive everywhere and who have the most lamentable public transportation system in the developed world, as far as I'm concerned, what's going to help? What's going to help solve this problem? You know, that's... Uh, the <laughs> question? Well, the Biden administration is struggling with it. You know, they came out with a... Uh, a tax holiday for three months for the federal gas tax, which was for three months decreased a gallon by 4%. And I think what it does show is that actually there's not a lot the government can do. I mean, we have a tight oil market, the tight crude oil market, the second market, which is the refined product market, which is gasoline and diesel and so forth. And that's even tighter. U.S. refiners are running virtually at full capacity. A lot of them have been shut down because either they weren't economic or it was said you won't need it or they're now they switched to do biofuels because that's what you know policy was demanding. And Europe, you know, it was a global refining system. And so Russia was part of that. The U.S. was importing five, six hundred thousand barrels a day of so-called intermediate product to the East Coast because it made our refineries run more efficiently. So they can't import that stuff now. And the refineries are less efficient in turning out product. Also, the East Coast depends a lot on gasoline 
from Europe, because uh, that's the most economic way traditionally to get it there. But now Europe's uh, refining system and sources of product is hampered because the Russian refinery system, for understandable reasons, is, is running far below capacity. So we have this very integrated refining system that, again, we just took for granted because uh, it delivered product when we wanted it and it's as cheap as possible. But now, because of uh, politics uh, and the need to deal with this, uh, this aggression, this war that uh, Putin has unleashed in Ukraine is really disrupting uh, the global markets. And, and, and we're feeling the reverberations here in the United States, combined with the fact that, uh, that uh, our refining system has really shrunk in the last few years. Uh, and in Europe, and new refineries that were supposed to come into operation in, in Nigeria and in the Middle East have all been delayed because of COVID and other reasons. You brought up Russia again, and one of the things that's been interesting, you know, as we watched the G7 was, first of all, uh, the idea that nobody knows exactly what to do. But I've been struck that the oil and gas sanctions really have not hit the Russians at all. Is that because the Chinese are just buying everything from them? Why? Well, I, I think it's, I think that, you know, they have, um, I mean, you know, I think Europe is doing something very stalwart. It's decided uh, that we are a 180 degree change. We're not going to be an importer of Russian oil anymore. It doesn't stop overnight. Uh, because the pipelines are in place. The Russians are being, you know, they're really stepped up. They're shipping by tankers, uh, by, you know, tank ships, uh, oil tankers to India. China gets it both from pipeline and by tankers. And, you know, for India, imports 85% of its oil. Oil price goes up. That's a huge hit to their balance of the payments in the economy. And so here's this deal. We can buy Russian oil at a 30% discount. So I don't know, maybe Indian imports of oil have maybe up 30-fold. They're up some huge number. And, of course, China is taking advantage of this. Uh, it's, it's a good deal for China. It always likes to buy cheap. And it also does something else that's very important for Putin and for Xi Jinping. It's another way of solidifying uh, this uh, much deeper relationship now between China and, and Russia. And, you know, the door, it's going to take time. But... You know, it said Peter the Great opened the window uh, to Europe. Uh, Vladimir Putin has shut it, has slammed it shut. And uh, and so I think that Russia basically comes out of this, not now, but a year from now, uh, increasingly just an economic dependency of China, another source of raw materials for China, and a key partner for China in this growing division that we see in the world. We just saw there was uh, news that the Germans are now talking about taking apart the pipeline, part of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that's in their sovereign waters and repurposing it. So permanently cutting that off, that's a big change. But let's talk about China because you you mentioned them. One of the points you've made is that China doesn't have natural energy and that if there was a confrontation with the U.S. and the South China Sea, they would worry that we'd interdict their supplies of oil and that they depend on for their economy. Is it smart for us to be pushing the Chinese to move from fossil fuels to, uh, from, a, from a geostrategic standpoint, from fossil fuels to uh, alternative sources of energy? Well, I think it's out of our hands. I think they're doing that for their own reasons, uh, their climate reasons, uh, climate policy, but I think it's also they have a big pollution problem that's a 
political problem for them. And they too want diversity. They, they're worried. They import 75% of their oil. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in the new map writing about the South China Sea. You know, I saw two areas where, the, where things were going to explode. One was Ukraine and the other, is, which has now happened, the other is the South China Sea. And for China, what's significant about the South China Sea is not the resources under the seabed, but it's the major route that they get their oil and gas. And they worry a lot about the U.S. Navy in terms of conflict. So for them, partly, it's, you know, making this energy transition is a, is a matter of security to diversify their economy. Of course, they still use a lot of and continue to use a lot of coal. But one of the things that has been positive, I think, is that China had turned into a significant uh, market for U.S. exports of LNG. I thought that, you know, to me, that seemed to be a good thing, you know, to, uh, you know, it was, it was good for our industry and our balance of payments. And it was, you know, kind of one of the positives in a relationship that is showing way too many negatives. That's really interesting. Just to sort of circle back a little bit to Russia, two questions. One, I don't know whether you saw the a little bit weird proposal, I thought, that came from Janet Yellen, the G7, to try to somehow manage the price of oil that Russia would be permitted to sell. Did you see that by chance? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, it's been floating out there to sort of try and, you know, establish a, um, a price that's at a discount to the current price. Uh, what do you think about you, that? Well, you know, uh, we'll see how it works. It seems to me, I'm not sure how you, I mean, you just say, well, we'll only pay you $70 for a barrel. We're not going to pay you $108 a barrel. Take it or leave it. I could be completely wrong and it could turn out to be a brilliant idea. Because, I mean, clearly, I just heard from a friend in Ukraine today who said, you know, the most important thing is to cut off the flow of uh, energy dollars to Russia. That's the most important thing to do. And obviously, with higher prices, Putin is making more money. And but I, to me, and as I say, I could be completely wrong. But it sounds to me sort of like a very interesting economic idea. But I don't know how how you implement something like that and what the mechanisms are. And um, you know, obviously, that would be beneficial because it would lower the price to Europe. And, and clearly, one of Putin's objectives, no doubt about it, is he's now doing something that the Soviets and Russians avoided doing for half a century. He is using energy as a weapon. He is using cutting back on gas supplies to Europe in order to disrupt the economy, send up prices, create economic hardship, unemployment, force factories not to work with the idea that this will crack the alliance. And, um, you know, the Germans have a German economics minister has been very explicit in, this, in describing it that way. And it's quite clear from what Putin is saying as well as what they're doing. He thinks he can, he, he made a mistake early on. One of his four big mistakes was assuming that Europe's dependence on energy would mean that they would, you know, kind of like Crimea and say, oh, this is terrible protest, but, you know, wave it on. Uh, that didn't happen. So, I mean, Putin's going back and redoubling and trying to make what was a faulty assumption turned into a real assumption. You know, when you see that the, you know, Marine Le Pen's party now has gone from six or nine to 89 seats in the French parliament, you can kind of see how his strategy is working, particularly in an era of high inflation, of which energy prices are an important component. 
you said four big mistakes. What are the other three? Well, the other three were, of course, uh, overestimating his own army, underestimating uh, the Ukrainians, and assuming that the U.S. was an, uh, an also run, uh, you know, everything from January 6th to uh, the haphazard withdrawal from Afghanistan, just saying the U.S. will not be able to get its act together it can't, and it cannot respond in a resolute way. And so I think those were his, in a way, every assumption was rational, but everyone turned out to be wrong, at least in the, you know, up till now. So exit question for me. You mentioned that Putin is using energy as a weapon. It seems like while he's using energy as a weapon, we're disarming. <laughs> as you pointed out in your book, one of the great geostrategic developments of the early 21st century is that our emergence is an energy superpower. And we seem to be willingly ceding that in the name of tackling climate change. Is, is that a geostrategic well, mistake? I think that was, well, first of all, I think the answer is yes. I think there's been something of a turnaround. I, I mean, after all, uh, during the campaign, you know, the Democratic primary, President Biden was talking about stopping drilling. Uh, now his administration has been urging more production from the U.S. industry. Uh, but they've come to understand that it's not a light switch, that it actually, even if you want to start a new shale well today, it'll still take six to nine months to produce. And and then it was Joe Biden who promised the Europeans 15% more LNG. So I think they've come around to realizing, maybe not everybody in the administration, but this is a big strategic asset for the United States. And, you know, um, they've asked for more production. There's only one country that's really adding a lot of new production this year. It's called the United States of America. Our oil production is probably going to go up, according to the administration's own energy information administration, uh, 800,000 to maybe even a million barrels a day. We're adding more new oil production in the United States than all the rest of the world combined. And it could not be more timely. And it's you know one of the brightest spots in what otherwise is a rather grim global energy picture. So I think, you know, I think there's been an awakening. And in a way, you know, one of the things I, I counted when I was writing the, the new map, we had eight U.S. presidents at least who promised energy independence since 1973. And it was a huge, big joke because it was never going to happen. And then it happened. And I think what, what then happened is it, it just got taken for granted. Oh, we can forget about it. We're not importing 60% of our oil, so it doesn't matter. Well, actually, it mattered a lot. And uh, it's really, you know, it's a, a source of strength, really, for the U.S. And it's a source of stability for the world. Just imagine if this, if this hadn't developed. I mean, it, we would be in such a bad position right now. You know, I'm not going to say that everybody has, has come around by any means. I mean, we still... John Kerry certainly know, hasn't. Yeah, yeah, as we can say, not everybody's come around. But, you know, if we can get beyond the sound bites to... Uh, to the reality, this is very important and it's a very crucial uh, element in what is now turning into a global geopolitical struggle, the outcome of which will shape um, many years to come. You know, one thing people, you know, people ask, what's this, how does this compare to other energy crises going back, as I think, Danny, you mentioned even back to the 1970s, many differences, but there were two similarities that jump out at me. One, energy markets were very tight going into this crisis as they were in the 70s. And secondly, the world after those crises was different. And we know that the world after this crisis is going to be different as well. 
Well, amen to that. I hope it'll be different in a good way rather than different in a bad way. Thank you, Dan. As always, it's so it's a, really an education to talk to you, and we're so grateful that you were able to spare the time for us. Well, thank you for reaching out again. I mean, so much has happened since we spoke last time, so I'm really glad that we can kind of look at it now in terms of where we are and, more importantly, where we're headed. And we, hope so everyone, thank you to you. we hope everyone will go out and buy a copy of your book, The New Map, The New Edition, which just came out at the end of last year. So, Mark, what'd you think? So, Dan is brilliant as advertised. I think that at the end, he's a little bit too optimistic about the change of heart in the Biden administration. (laughs) (laughs) I think that he's absolutely right that energy companies are starting to step up and that the Biden administration is terrified by the politics of this. But here's the problem is that the energy companies could be doing a lot more, but they're worried that as soon as the war in Ukraine ends, it'll go back to what it was before. They think this is a temporary blip where Biden is calling for more production because he needs it now politically. But as soon as this crisis is over, they're going to go back to bashing big oil. They're going to go back to trying to tax and regulate them out of business. They're going to go back to, well, John Kerry has never left it <laughs> because he just said the other day that, we, that we've uh, got to get rid of all coal plants within the, by 2030 in the United States. They'll revert back to their uh, war on fossil fuels in a heartbeat as soon as this crisis is over. And so why would you invest? I mean, energy is a long-term business, right? It, like he, As yeah. he pointed out, it takes 16 years with a mine, it takes 16 years to bring a mine into production. It takes a long time to, to bring an oil well into production. It takes a long time to get a coal plant going. This, these aren't things that, that you do for just a two or three year crisis. Why would they invest when they know this is the Well, no, that, that's, that's what all of these oil companies are saying. You know, yeah. the Biden administration brought them all in to meet with them, to encourage them to produce more. And, you know, they Biden said- Biden wouldn't meet with them, but he met with the solar power people. Well, well the solar power people, <laughs> you know, the vast mass of solar power comes out of China because we seeded that market years ago. So thank you, Joe Biden. Look, I think one of the things that really is lost on people is that this is not just about the environment. This is not just about moving towards cleaner, greener energy. This is about a geostrategic race for resources that is going on. And we have unilaterally disarmed in so many different ways. You know, in the last election or two elections ago in Australia, one of the big battles was over this giant mine in Queensland. And, you know, the left wanted to close it down, and the right said, hell to the no, we're not closing it down. But that battle has been lost in the United States. We're not opening new mines anywhere. And I understand, you know, mines are an eye, often an eyesore. They involve... They don't, they, they're not good for the environment, Danny. <laughs> but we only Indeed. care... But we don't care about... But this is the thing. They don't care about the environment. They care about their habitat. Right. As long as it's not happening here, as long as it's happening, right, not, in my, it's, it's, it's not in my backyard, not my backyard. As long as I don't if, have if, to if, see if, it, if, as long as I don't have to see it. If it's all happening in Africa, it's, it's happening in China. If it's happening in Russia, and we can get, but then what happens is because of NIMBY policies, we're not going to produce. We have a lot of mineral resources and all these things here in the United States that we can't access because the environmentalists won't let us. We are going to be dependent on Russia. Well, and, that's exactly why I said there is a race for geostrategic resources, and you know the Chinese Belt and Road Project is possibly one of the biggest international scams that has taken place. You know, the Chinese are not Tell interested in... So China, China's Belt and Road Project, which was initiated some years ago, is basically about building infrastructure around the world. And what they've done is they have systematically gone in and it's debt trap diplomacy. It's here, build this highway. Here, build this port. Here, build this road. And the Chinese go in, they build it. They use their own workers to do it. They lend the money 
to these sovereign countries, and the sovereign countries often cannot pay it, and the Chinese simply take ownership. That's what happened in Sri Lanka. The Chinese have a very strategic, very important port on the Indian Ocean as a result of exactly that. And they're doing the same thing with natural resources all across Africa, all throughout Asia, even to a certain point in Europe. My own state of Victoria and Australia signed up to the Belt and Road, and it was only the Scott Morrison government that forced them to give it up. Thank God. Because this is absolutely a a Chinese master plan to control natural resources around the world. We need to understand that unless we get on top of that, we're not going to be able to make a transition to greener energy. We're not going to be able to make any of the, these transitions because they are going to control that supply chain just like they control every other. Because now they are dependent on us for energy, for the rest of the world for energy. And as we transition to electric cars, we will be dependent on them for the raw materials to make the batteries to run our cars and they can cut us off. So do you want to be dependent or independent? That's the question. That's a very nice note on which to end. Let us know, people. Do you want to be dependent or do you want to be independent? I'm going to guess at what the answer is to that. Hey, thanks for listening. If you have comments, questions, let us know. Take care. See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.